All right. So hello, I'm uh, David Denon talking to Daniel Tarpey. We're going to discuss the free will, be talking about the free will issue today, the free will debate. It's been uh, kind of a popular issue recently, um, partly, I think, because of this book, Robert Sapolsky's um, Determined. And there was another book. So Sapolsky is arguing against the existence of free will. Then there was another book about the same time last year, uh, Kevin Mitchell's Free Agents, which is arguing for free will. And uh, Mitchell and Sapolsky did a debate, and Sapolsky has recently debated Daniel Dennett, and Mitchell debated Susan Blackmore, who thinks free will is an illusion. And there's been a lot of other debates kind of around that. So now we're going to try to discuss this, and I think we have slightly different ways of coming at it. And uh, yeah, so... Should I, I uh, introduce yeah, some can, of the... Could you give us an overview of, of these positions for Sapolsky and uh, Kevin Mitchell? Yeah, uh, so I'd... Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd say maybe the debate, kind of the basis for the historical basis for the debate comes out of two kind of common sense observations. One is that we seem to be able to choose different things. We can make choices. And you could maybe think about those as being free some of the time. And then there's another observation, which is that we can, we usually seem to find an explanation for things, for why things happen. We can look at, take an event, and we, we like to find explanations for why did that happen. And these two observations seem to be in tension with each other. And so if you think that being able to explain an event, an event why something happens, if you think that, uh, means that therefore, in principle, things are predictable, everything has a cause, then you come down more on the side of what's called determinism. You think that the future follows from the past, cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, on and on and on into infinity. That's more like a deterministic position. And then um, there are other people like, um, well, there's other positions more libertarian. They call this in philosophy libertarianism, which is different than the, of course, the political view, although they could be related. Um, but libertarianism, you believe more that there is freedom. There is less, um, that our choices are less related to prior causes. And there's different ways of looking at this. Um, kind of a hardcore position was would be that we are at least some of the time able to have um, actions that are not caused, uncaused actions or un, you know, as like unmoved movers. <clears throat> um, someone like Mitchell, who, and I find this with a lot of the recent, well, 20th and 21st century writings on free will, is that what they're really interested in is the concept of self-control. So they're not so much interested in, you know, does this action, is this action caused or uncaused, but how do we get how do we evolve self-control? And this is really like Daniel Dennett's position. When Daniel Dennett talks about free will, he's usually, as far as I can tell, talking about self-control. Kevin Mitchell, I think, is largely talking about how do we come to have control of ourselves in order to make decisions and whether that's um, whether you need determinism or need indeterminism for self-control to happen is an interesting question. Kevin Mitchell, I think, thinks there's much more indeterminism. He thinks takes more of an indeterminist position based on, I think, developments in physics and quantum physics. 
So yeah, yeah those are at least. Yeah, we'll have to get, we'll get to that later about whether it is a agency, unmoved mover agency, or if it's some kind of selecting through different uh, options or possibilities. Uh, but then we have like Daniel Dunn is kind of a compatibilist, right? So we have yeah. that whole, I mean, I don't, I don't see how that's very coherent, but that is a, one other, one other avenue to this free will discussion. Uh, but you also mentioned another one that would be more in line with you, which would be pr pragmatist, right? Can you explain that one a little bit? Sure, I'll try. So, um, yeah, my intellectual background, or I guess the the tradition that I tend to I identify with, is um, pragmatism. And pragmatists have had an interesting um, position on this debate. I think they're usually not considered much when people talk about free will and determinism, which I think is precisely because they think it's a kind of a wrong, a wrong question. Uh, William James actually is sometimes brought up because he had a, he tried to develop his own view of free will and determinism. He thought determinism was a useful perspective in science, but he also held to a kind of free will. You know, he thought it must be possible to change our future, that it wasn't all determined, that we had to be able to make the world better through our actions, which maybe is not how people usually think about free will. But uh, he felt that we had kind of the power to improve improve the world through our through our actions. Um, but I think generally after William James, I think pragmatists have generally criticized both the free will and determin deterministic positions. So Dewey, for example, rejects the concept of free will. He's interested in choice. And I think to explain choice, you don't need this extra concept of free will. You can just talk about choice. And he thought there was a lot of drawbacks to the term free will. It made things seem very more uh, same, seem much more individual, individualistic or personal or something kind of hidden and interior, whereas Dewey tended to look to the outside world, to the public world, to politics, to economics, in order to understand our freedom, to social life. So he found the basis for freedom in social life, not in some mysterious free will faculty. Um, and, but he also critiqued determinism, on the other hand. And he thought developments, he lived, of course, longer than someone like William James. Dewey lived until 1950-something. Uh, so anyway, he experienced kind of these um, paradigm shifts in physics with um, quantum physics and with the theory of relativity. And he had to try to take account of that into his philosophy. And he thought these developments undermined traditional determinism. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he thought determinism, as it's been traditionally understood, was not viable and he had a lot of qualms about free will as a concept as well. So he focused on freedom. What does, you know, how do human societies make themselves more free? How do they support freedom for their, for the people who live in them? And uh, yeah, that, and education, how do we improve intelligent choice? Those were his main kind of concerns. Yeah, this takes us to the first, I think, the, the first uh, problem or in the free will discussion, there's, uh, a, miscon a misconception of what we mean when we say free will. Like, what are we actually talking about? And it seems that some of us, some philosophers at least, were talking about the metaphysical concept of free will. And other people are talking more about the practice or the exercising of that free will. 
And uh, that can lead to people talking. Like I one of the podcasts I was listening, listening to, the, they're arguing, but from totally different positions of you know, going over each other. Uh, so from, from my perspective, to me, I, I think of free will in a metaphysical concept, which would be like you mentioned before about an unmoved mover. Um, and I see agency as a feature of consciousness. It's a, the capacity for self-cause action, this, this choosing faculty rather than uh, exercising of this faculty. So a, a lot of these um, pragmatists or compatibilists, they're talking about free will kind of like on a surface level where they're talking about the exercising of the free will. But uh, for me, it's, it's do humans have the capacity for agency? Are they agents in that sense? So it wouldn't matter, like it wouldn't matter to talk about uh, degrees of freedom or uh, determined versus influence. Because we can imagine like if, like if you take someone and tie them up so they can't move at all, they're, it's, they're unable to move. We would still say, well, you know, in normal terms, we would still say that person is free, has free will. They can't exercise a free will because they're constrained or they're influenced or they're determined to not be able to move. Uh, but we still, they are still of the being that is capable or that has free will. So I think that's the first uh part of the discussion that gets into conflict with people from different uh, perspectives or backgrounds. So for me, the free will is not that the person is able to move or able to will their movements because they could be constrained, but that they are that which is capable of or that which as its nature and its essence has this faculty, which we call agency or free will. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> so there was, uh, I think the older Greek idea about free will was more about free action. Um, and then like more modern ideas have more to do, I think with desires, the ability to choose and things like that. So tying someone up would not necessarily, of course, not get rid of your desires to be free, for example. Um, so I don't think, I mean, I don't still would not necessarily describe that as having free will. Someone ties you up, you still have, have uh, you still have agency, for example, or you have, um, what do we want to just uh, talk about that? Um, and so it's not a matter of just what you can actually do. Um, and also, I think pragmatism, you would want to point out that it's not a matter of individual, you know, it's not so useful necessarily to look at this individual in this circumstance. You want to look at groups of individuals across many circumstances and see what are they capable of doing? What can't they do? Things like that. What do they usually do? What are exceptions yeah. and things like that? So, I mean, you wouldn't just take uh, a person who's tied up as a kind of norm um, but you would be able to observe them before they were tied up and maybe after they were tied up and be able to see that they <laughs> made choices about what to do and, uh, and that kind of thing. And that's kind but of this, where. But this yeah. takes us to a, a, another idea, which is as much as I don't like uh, Daniel Bennett's uh, compatibilism, because I think it's just, it doesn't, it's incoherent in its nature and the, the nature of its argument, but he does, he did write a book called, uh, I think it's called Evolving Freedom, which I yeah, happen to agree evolves. with. Yeah. Freedom Evolves, yeah. Which I happen to agree with because 
his statement is that we become more and more free. Uh, and so I, I agree with this idea that because we are of the nature, let's say, to be, to have, to be agents, that we have agency, we are endowed somehow with this agency, uh, we, we would imagine somebody who's unaware of that agency or someone can grow increasingly aware of that agency. So we say a, like a child or a baby, they're not, they're not aware of their agency. They have to, you know, and then, you know, in the old days and women were repressed or whatever, and then they have to become aware of this, you know, female consciousness or racial consciousness. They have to become aware of their agency. It's a kind of evolving, it's kind of growth. It doesn't mean that that uh, a child or a woman in the old days didn't have agency because they had the agency there. It was just not exercise. It was not, a, they weren't aware of this faculty. So it's kind of like a faculty. And even if they are not aware of the faculty, so they don't act as if they are free, um, they still have the capacity for this agency. They are still agents, even if they're not aware of their agency. And the whole point of human evolution, the whole point of being a human is to grow into this agency, to go and in, grow into this awareness that you are an agent. And I right. think that's the, the one part I agree with Daniel Dennett on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although he uses this term of freedom different than me. I mean it in a metaphysical way. I mean it like down to the bottom of reality, there is something called agency. Mm -hmm. And he uses it more like something like it's really not clear exactly what he means by his uh, when he talks about freedom because he doesn't actually think we ourselves that we have like you know there's something called the self and that self has agency but he does seem to think that we do have we can make choices mm -hmm. yeah i think yeah then yeah i find dennett a little bit unclear on this too and that's one problem with a term like self-control which he uses which is what is the self that's controlling or, <laughs> um yeah where is this what does the control emanate from i mean that gets into it uh, before, before jumping into more of these things about like the self-control i was thinking uh, about uh, determinism because uh, you sent out a uh you know um, google docs with a bunch of definitions for determinisms i pulled out a few um sure. also a few other ones so we'll see like if we can clearly understand what the determinist position is <laughs> and I have some quotes here uh, this is something, I don't know who said this, but uh, if you could measure all the atoms in the universe, you would know what I would have for breakfast tomorrow. So, something to that extent. Uh, another mm -hmm. concept is could not have done otherwise. So there's only one possibility. So this is also, uh, I think, uh, uh, physical uh, predeterminism. There's only one exact physical, physically possible future and only one possible timeline exists. That's one way. Uh, one quote you had was pretty interesting from Mark Twain. Whatsoever man is, is due to his make and to the influences brought to bear upon it by his heredities, his habit, his associations. He is moved, directed, commanded by exterior influences solely. He originates nothing, not even a thought. I think that pretty much sums yeah. up what a determinism is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So determinism is a, a complicated position too. Um, and this is partly because cause and effect is a very... Um, well, like free will, it's a thing that means many things, has meant many things to many people. Um, one of the things that I like about Kevin Mitchell's book, Free Agents, is that he points out clearly that there are these different kinds of um, determinism. So he mentions uh, physical determinism, which is the idea that there's only one possible path from mm -hmm. the past to the yeah. future. 
um, causal determinism. So every event is necessarily caused by preceding events. Biological determinism, that's more like Sapolsky's position where your choices are kind of determined by your uh, physical or your biological uh, equipment and also your environment, of course. Um, but like your uh, your bio biochemistry and your neurology and all of that goes into, you know, and the, how that was formed goes into kind of deciding your decisions for you. Um, yeah, so there are all these different forms of uh, determinism. Um, I think one way, so you mentioned compatibilism. I think there's a sense in which compatibilism makes sense. This is another pragmatist idea, but it's not so much of um, Dennett's form of compatibilism. So one way, the kind of one close parallel to the free will determinism debate is the mechanism teleology debate, which has also gone on since at least the, I mean, under that name, it's gone on since the 19th century, at least. And there was a big, um, well, a number of debates about, can these be reconciled? Mechanism here, being not machine, but one branch of science dealing with mechanics. Um, so basically reducing things or looking at things from the perspective of uh, um, space, time, and mass principally. Sometimes you would look at energy or other forces, but kind of it's centered around space, time, and mass, looking at points and how they um, relate to each other um, across space and time. So very kind of like causal picture of the world. Yeah. And that um kind of physics come out comes out of that possibly chemistry there's debates about how the different sciences relate to each other but mechanics in that sense is like how things kind of mechanically relate to each other not about machines per se um <clears throat> and how does that relate to something like biology or psychology or sociology and this is of course a, a difficult question um i do think it is resolvable i do think uh, there's a way to look at life as coming out of not life, right? I think that's partly what is behind this question. You know, what is what makes life different from non-living things, which we can look at just as teleological, tele uh, sorry, mechanistic. You can give equations for how rocks roll down hills. You can give equations for how planets move and all of that. You can give equations for you know a person falling down a hill, but what do, does that does that tell you all you want to know about yeah. a person? <laughs> so then there's all these other you know and how do those things relate? Um, those other questions about purpose, about meaning, about value. How do those relate to these me more mechanistic questions? And I think something like emergence, you have to think about something like emergence. Mm -hmm. There can be new stuff, right? in the universe. It's not just all mechanism. You can get new things. Do so you um, think a compatibilist view is incorporating a concept of emergence? Not necessarily, but I think you could. I'm not quite sure about De uh, Dennett's views on that, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't know if all compatibilists would view it in that way, but I think you could. One way of resolving this um, free will indeterminism thing as a kind of compatibilism would be to kind of recast it more as mechanism and teleology. And at hmm. some point there's a switch where you get um, purposeful organisms or you get organisms, right? Living yeah. things emerging out of 
non-living matter. And once that, get, once that gets started, you're kind of into a new realm where now you start being able to explain things in terms of purpose, uh, in terms of action, behavior, and- Yeah, so uh, the idea yeah. of, of emergence is quite interesting. I mean, I, I guess it is, it would be a most compatibilist view if fundamentally there is no agency, but there is an emergence of agency. I mean, I guess it's kind of merged into two views, but I have this, uh, so I have this idea. So for a determinist or uh, let's say a pragmatist uh, such as yourself, <laughs> is, the, is the way you see the way you see the world or the way you see uh, humans interacting with the world or this, this thing called the self. One idea is that there's, there's like a glass. We are behind we, the self. The self is behind the glass watching and perhaps being deceived, thinking that it's the one making decisions when it is just believing a story the brain says. The brain says, hey, I just moved this, you know, I just picked up this cup to drink. And the self behind the glass is like, oh yeah, I picked up the cup to drink. But actually there's a glass there. The self didn't do anything. It's just fed a story. Like uh, one of the podcasts are talking about a driver in a, in, in a self-driving car. That's one idea. So there is something there that is experiencing something, uh, even though it is not the cause of that experience. It's not causing anything. The other idea is that that ghost behind the glass is not even real. It's not, it's just an illusion. There is no ghost. There is no self behind the glass. Not only do we not cause the actions, we don't even, there's nothing called us that is thinking that's causing the actions. And that would take us a little bit more to Sam Harris's kind of view, which actually Sapolsky too, because they both, uh, it seems to me that most determinists, you know, by definition will have to deny a concept of the self. And that gives us in tricky waters. So where would you be yeah. on that from the ghost behind the glass to the ghost being an illusion? Where would you fit into as far as this thing that thinks that it's making choices? I do think that we make choices. One of the things that pragmatists have insisted on is that freedom is a quality of the whole person. It's something that belongs not to the brain, say, or something else, but it belongs to the whole person as a, you know, a cultural being, as a biological and cultural being. So it's, um, so self in that sense is just, you know, the person which is a kind of biological creature, which has um, exists in a certain kind of society with a certain kind of culture, which gives it a certain um, certain strategies for dealing with the world, a certain range of choices of things to choose from. And I do think we deliberate. I do think we make choices. So I don't think it's a matter of, I don't think it's a kind of illusion as Harris would say, I don't think things are just decided by our brain. That's a weird, a, common, but a kind of, for me, a kind of odd kind of reductionism where it's like, you're just your brain. Like I've never even seen my brain. You know, I don't know, <laughs> don't know what it's doing. I don't know what's up there, but I do see my, I do see my body. I am you know, aware of myself as kind of a biological and physical person. And, uh, you know, I can listen to my thoughts or make my thoughts. Um, I can deliberate about things and choose things. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not a kind of like a ghost in machine kind of person. I'm not like, uh, you know, we're just spectators. I mean, I guess you could try to experience the world that way. Sometimes Sam Harris 
claims to experience the world that way. I think where you're just kind of an observer, observer, watching things happen. Um, but I'm not convinced that that is a useful way of actually looking at the world. Okay. I don't know how would how would you? Well, I guess so, so. We we or you keep using this term. We keep using this term about. Uh, so besides free will is the idea of choice. And it seems that some people are making a distinction between those two concepts. So I guess uh, like we could try to figure out what do we mean when we say things like free will and things like choices. Mm -hmm. And I, I have an idea for it. But uh, before that idea, I, wanna, I would like to throw in the term of consciousness, because obviously right. that when we, when we talk about free will is somehow connected to consciousness. Mm -hmm. And to me, uh, a difficulty with determinism is that is this concept of consciousness, which is, seems very self-apparent. Uh, and one issue of it is that consciousness is transcendent to determinism in, in that there is no way to get behind consciousness. I think this is uh, one of the founders of quantum physics. His quote is that everything we talk about, everything that we regard as existing postulates consciousness. So even when we talk about determinism, we are standing on consciousness, on a concept of consciousness to talk about it. So whatever consciousness is, it's bigger than determinism. That's one way that determinism is, uh, that's one way that consciousness is transcendent to this concept called determinism. Um, and, and then we have this idea of choices, choices and unmoved mover. So for, I'm still trying to decide what exactly my position is in regards to this, but as I see it, when we when we talk about an agent, we mean something that is able to generate action, to generate a mover. And so uh, I really like this quote that you had by uh, I forgot who which uh, philosopher it was, but it's funny because I I had this I wrote this quote down basically my own version of it, and then I read what you sent me, and I was like, oh, it's the exact same thing. But it's the idea of the unmoved mover, right? So. If consciousness is a kind of is in itself an unmoved mover, that's a very it's a it's a godlike attribute. And this quote here is: if you're responsible, and if what I've been trying to say is true, then we have a prerogative which some would attribute only to God. Each of us, when we act, is a prime mover, unmoved. So yeah. I think when we talk about free will, we mean well. Okay, when metaphysicians mm -hmm. talk about free will, they mean uh, precisely that which can generate action. So it's the it's it's the idea that let's say uh, if you use quantum physics terms, is you have the idea of like a field of potential, like fundamental reality, the ground of all being, God or whatever, is this field of potential, and in this field of potential, uh, whatever this thing called agency is, creates, it generates action. So it's not like there's a web of cause and effect, and we are just in that web, you know, without any agency, we generate causes or we add causes into the causal chain of events. So that's one way of saying the unmoved mover. But then there's other total uh, kind of different concept of choice, which would be in this field of potentials, let's say there's an infinite range of potentials, but they already are existing. They're all existing simultaneously. And agency is what selects one path out of those multiple paths. So in that in that action, it's not it's not generating something new. 
it is selecting out of what is already there. So I guess those are two concepts, two, two ways of thinking about this agency thing. One is choosing between alternate realities. So solidifying a path between in a, in a superposition, solidifying one particular path. Another idea is that in this causal chain of events, it is introducing new causes. I think my position, at least currently right now, would be that both of those are true. Both of those are what we talk about when we say agency. Not only is it solidifying one path, like the observer watching the electrons pass through uh, in, that, in that particular slit experiment. So not only are they solidifying one path, but they also are able to generate a cause into a deterministic universe. I suppose you would disagree with those both of those positions or? <laughs> um, yeah, I think it depends for me on how you state it. I mean, the, the idea of the unmoved mover is difficult for me. I would maybe want to look at it like um, the difference between say choosing um, kind of standard options, you know, cult your, your culture, for example, provides your, your society provides you with a range of jobs you could take, right? There's these jobs that exist and you could choose one of those. And that's kind of making a choice among but, what is already but if, there. Okay, so if there's, if there's a determinist system with, uh, as the terminists say, <clears throat> only one possible path, mm -hmm. then what is choice doing? What is, what is, choice must be something that is fundamental to this reality system. If there's like two choices, let's say chocolate and vanilla, and it's indeterminate, what is going to, what is, let's say, going to be cho chosen. If that's indeterminate, that choice itself, and this is my position, that choice is fundamental to reality. That reality itself is, is choice dependent, agency dependent. So it, that would make sense. Like if you could, if there is multiple jobs that, you know, culture gives you, whatever, if you are able to choose a job, then it must be that fundamental reality is choice dependent. The path of reality must depend on agency or must, maybe it doesn't have to depend, it'll just keep flowing, but an agent can modify it. And if an agent can modify that path, then it must be that the agent is fundamental reality or is at the level of fundamental reality? Yeah. Um, well, as you know, I, I don't quite subscribe to the concept of fundamental reality. I mean, I think it is <laughs> choice is fundamental for human reality, um, but that's not the only level of reality that you can look at. But I, I mean, I do. Okay, so yeah, we go back to the emergent. So mm -hmm. you're saying at the level, at the reality, the human reality level, Mm -hmm. choice, uh, the agent is fundamental to that reality. And therefore you mm -hmm. can choose a different job. I guess the same yeah, thing. I mean, the like... point I was, the point I was making with that is like, you can select among standard alternatives, but you can also create a new alternative, mm -hmm. right? If the job, like in our society, if the job you want, isn't there, you can kind of create your own new thing. And that's kind of a question. Yeah. Where does this kind of newness come from? And there, I think there are naturalistic explanations for how, in a way you create something out of nothing Right? You create this new path through life that wasn't there before, that wasn't given you by your society, wasn't given you by tradition. Um, and I think there are explanations of that. Um, so that's kind of what I was trying to illustrate by that choice is 
what a naturalistic version of the unmoved mover might come down to is like creative behavior, creating something new that wasn't already yeah. given to so, you by your So that would society. be the, the distinction between choice, which would be society gives you like, you know, three job options and unmoved mover, which would be you create a new, uh, a new option. But it, when we use the word choice and create, either you have to have, like you say, like an emergent idea, which is like, you know, like the level of quantum physics is that the tree actually doesn't exist. There's just particles with a bunch of space in between. But in our human world, we see things called trees. So that's like, an, it's like two different levels of reality. So if we have a human level of reality, then yes, the human, the agent is free, makes choices, constrained or unconstrained to whatever degree, but they are able to make choices because in the human world, they are fundamental. And then you were separating that from the, let's say the real real world, which underlies the human world, pre, pre-emergent world that is underlying sure. the human world. Is that, would that be your position? I think how, so. How could I you mean, say, how could you say that we are choosing it? Like, how does that work? That <clears throat> if it's, if the future is indeterminate and there's two possible outcomes, and we are what makes reality shift from one outcome to another outcome. Doesn't that sound like reality is dependent on us? Yeah. That we are, yeah. Um, but yeah, as reality, as far as we know, I mean, um, I think after life comes along, then choice does is part of reality and does matter to reality and does change reality. Um, you could try to imagine kind of the pre- what they call it the prebiotic world or whatever, um, where I imagine, I don't know, I suspect I, you know, at least according to how I use words, there would be no choice in kind of a pre prebiotic world. Um, but then once you do, once you do get that emergence of life, then I think that is part of reality and choice does affect reality because the choices we make, I mean, this is one of the things about kind of the difference between mechanistic and teleological accounts and E.A. Singer, a philosopher I like, you kind of used just a minor example, used the example of Brutus killing Caesar. And there is a, a mechanistic way to look at that as kind of atoms moving through other atoms. But that's not necessarily what we want to know about when we want to know why did Brutus kill Caesar. It's not because these atoms bumped into these atoms, but there's this whole other level of explanation that becomes part of reality once um, once life gets started. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess it's kind of like, at some point it gets into semantics because, so for Wheeler is uh, one of the one of the great figures of quantum physics and he has uh, agreed that, I mean, a position that I agree with, which is the, uh, we live in a participatory universe. So the, we solidify the path in the future, but also to the past. So in the past, let's say in the, the world you're talking about, uh, the world was indeterminate. Not only was there consciousness not or choice not really there, it was indeterminate until consciousness came into this world. And then the path in history, the path of the past was solidified. So we are creating not only the future, but the past. Um, and this is the idea from quantum physics. Uh, and is an idea, uh, idea that I agree with in that um, uh, emergent, emergentist, a person who believes in emergence, they will say that usually they are talking about, okay, there is like um, one world, let's say H2O, and then there is a wetness of water. 
right? That's the two worlds of emergence. Um, but at some point it becomes semantics. Now, what do, do we, do we mean that there is a fundamental reality that's H2O and then the wetness of water is just a secondary reality. It's, it, it really exists, but only exists at a secondary level. It's like a, it's like a second class reality. Um, for me, it'd be like, even if we talk about something like emergence in this quantum physics concept, where it's like the world is indeterminate or in a state of superposition until consciousness comes and solidifies a path, we might, we, that, that might be one way of saying emergence, but not only would that be strong emergence, that'd be something like bigger or stronger than strong emergence. We have a weak emergence, strong emergence, and that would be something like supernatural emergence. Uh, and so I would agree with that position and that there is some kind of teleological growth or evolution through this reality structure. Uh, even if the past had no consciousness or no choice or no agency, or if it did, but the agency was in potential because we couldn't say it didn't have it because it just like the acorn, you know, it has the, the, the tree inside itself in potential, even though it's not there in the past. I would say that the agency or the agent was there in the past and just didn't, was not, was only there in potentiality until it came into being. Hmm. So therefore we could merge an idea of emergence with an idea of free will. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. And this is a question I'm not too sure about. Like, I wonder, you know, how probable was it that life would begin, right? What were the probability, you know, what, under what conditions does it become probable that life would begin? Is it always a potential there? I mean, was it always a potential of the universe or? Um, well, it would have to have been a potential of the universe. Well, yeah, yeah. So it, somehow it would right. have to be a potential. Right. But what does that mean exactly? Yeah. What is, have... <laughs> is it as <laughs> I mean, either it happens potential? or it doesn't like it happens or it doesn't. But uh, yeah, so I'm not quite sure how to. Yeah. Think okay, about that's... that kind of issue. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, but I, I, not, yeah. maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, these underlying motivations or assumptions that these different positions have. Uh, okay, uh, uh, maybe specifically... right before... sure. Yeah, yeah. Before um, maybe we do that um, to get out of um, before we get out of the choice issue. I'll see if I can share my. This is just one way that I think about choice and in relation to so i yeah i shared you with this of course but okay yeah, i can see it just put it on the screen for uh so just one way to think about choice and relation to biology and different life forms um and this comes out of various people's work these are not exactly my own my own ideas and also the relation with consciousness consciousness yeah so, and you can start really anywhere, but I do have the idea of, so I do tend to think about different degrees of freedom. And as you get different systems, different biological systems, and eventually different artificial systems, perhaps AIs and so on, you get different kinds of freedom or different degrees of freedom with respect to the environment. So I think when life yeah. comes along, you get a certain kind of freedom from the effects of the second law, what we call the second law of thermodynamics. So you get a freedom from just being at the mercy of your environment, at the mercy of just environmental degradation, erosion, disintegration. So you persist, right? You become able to 
persist by storing energy, seeking out sources of energy, reproducing. So you get a kind of freedom in that sense that, say, a stone doesn't have, which is just at, to at the total mercy of its environment. Yeah. And then when I think if you... If you show us there on the left, uh, I guess you just tell us the, the terms there, they're reactive, goal-seeking. So I guess the, the one at the bottom would be what we call a human. With the, yeah, the, the last two, the I most would say... Freedom. Yeah. Would be at human. some point there would be something like animals and then yeah so animals you start to get distance perception so at the first okay. level you'd have something like contact perception like we humans still have this like when something touches you you feel it you have a reaction um and then with animals you start getting um seeing hearing smelling could be considered as distant uh, a distance form of perception where you're freed from like stuff immediately touching you. That could be yeah. harmful, right? You're able okay, to now so. be free with respect to predators that you might see from far away. You can see sources of food that are farther away. So you have freedom from more freedom from starvation, for example. So you're not just always missing the food source. You can look into the distance and see it or smell it from far away and go towards it, right? This is related to behavior also. Um, and then you start getting humans and you get symbols and you get freed from your immediate environment. Now you can talk about the future. You develop symbols. Symbols can represent things that are not there right then in your environment. You can talk about the future. You can talk about the past. And so this is where more like what we think of as human freedom comes from. So when we're making a decision, we're thinking we're uh, constructing a future for ourselves using symbols, right? We're imagining what the what will the future be like if I make this choice? And that's based on symbol use, or I mean, you would call this a kind of consciousness. And I think this is a particular kind of consciousness. I kind of try to avoid the word consciousness because it mm -hmm. has many, it comes in at all those levels, but in different ways, right? You could define it differently according to each of these levels. But I think human reflective consciousness or reflective experience, symbolic consciousness is really what we mean when we're talking about human agency and making choices. And then I even have a level for um, ideal seeking, which is actually freeing yourself from any situation conceivable, right? Having an ideal, like I'm going to become the best ever at this thing, or we're going to continually improve society, right? This is not like something that is achievable necessarily in 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, but it's an ideal that you can maybe get closer and closer to, but never achieve. And that kind of goes hmm. beyond actual time and space, measurable time and space. Hmm. And so this is, I it think, reminds me of important... Peterson's uh, definitions of free will about like, the closer you are in, in a time bound, the less freedom you have, the further you go into the future, the more freedom you have. Interesting. Yeah. But I also do see it's quite like you mentioned consciousness is it's also similar to like uh, i wouldn't say development of consciousness but a capacity for consciousness right yeah so you I have think you your do. set once you have your eye you know hearing seeing smelling that's that's a you know i guess it's freedom but it's also very much tied in with this concept of consciousness development yeah i tend to think of it more in terms of perception or experience because at least to me they're more concrete um but you could substitute, I think, the word consciousness. So 
um, earlier biologists and stuff would talk about, uh, you know, contact reception or contact sensation, distance perception. So I think consciousness maybe adds a little confusion to at least these lower levels because it's mm -hmm. not yeah. consciousness like humans would often think of it where you're having inner thoughts and thinking about <laughs> yeah, what I guess to that's do another, or... another word too we have to like try to define <laughs> as a consciousness. Uh, I guess what we're, when we talk about the self, uh, see, my, my idea of using the word self or consciousness, which I use interchangeably, is that there is some locus of experience. There is something. So even though, uh, like Harris, for instance, he talks about you know, the self being an illusion, but he always, at every time, means that whatever, even his most meditative experiences, means that there is something experiencing whatever state that is. There is an experience of a state, even if that state is pure awareness, whatever else. There is some kind of ex uh, locus of that experience, and that's localized in one particular body. So whatever, like if he meditates, I'm not going to have this experience. His whatever experience he's having is in within his his own self, so it's subjective in that sense. Even though his experience might be like, oh, I transcended and I'm the one with the universe. Okay, but it's still only reported by you, <laughs> so it's still an experience located in it from one focal point. And so, like if you have if something touches you, right, or if you have a sense of smell or vision or sight, whatever that thing that is the the receptor, right, the receiver of that sense is what I call consciousness or self, which would be very obviously different from this term of like ego, self as ego, um, as or self as a formed character or you know some kind of construct. So it's interesting, but I still see that these. So back again to the what I mentioned in the beginning about there's two levels. One is talking about uh, free will or agency as a faculty and free will as agency as exercising of that faculty. So with this example, like you, you, you have here on the screen is this is all exercising of a faculty or the descriptive, uh, we could imagine that whatever this self is that underlies, you know, the goal seeking, objective seeking, because it's, even though the word is not used here, it's all predicated on a concept of a, some thing. Something is having sight. Something is having sense of hearing. Something is doing this. So it's all predicated on this thing. And whatever that thing is, we'd say that thing has the capacity or the faculty of these words called freedom to varying degrees. And the degrees, I suppose, to me, would be more like the exercise of that capacity. But the question is, does anything in the universe have this capacity, this faculty of freedom? If it does, that would mean that reality itself is dependent or it, it is, is uh, agency dependent, right? There, I don't know if there's any way to get around saying that. If, you, if, <laughs> if at any point in time, the system is indeterminate, or at any point in time, the system has... Uh, the only other explanation you have for this is randomness, which is a separate issue, but... If any point in time, okay, leaving aside randomness, at any point in time, there is something intending reality to shift, then whatever that is, is fundamental to reality. 
I don't think you, we can get around that argument. Hmm. Although we we could say like this idea of of freedoms and and varying to goal, uh, varying degrees of freedom, I think that's still we're talking about the exercising of that faculty. But if something underlying that is has a faculty of choosing, even even if if free will maybe is too extreme, we could use the word choosing. If it if it even if it could choose, <laughs> then we have defended free will. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, I wouldn't necessarily use the term free will. I mean, these degrees of freedom that I talk about, so there are things that could be exercised. They don't need to be exercised to be there. I mean, you can close your eyes or people can be blind or whatever, um, and they might have the potential for sight, like we can sometimes replace um, yeah. and help blind people to see. So you have a kind of a potential for vision, but you might not be able to exercise it for one or another reason, which I think is why um, kind of pragmatists and the conscientious scientists would tend to look at large groups of things that seem to be similar. So would a pragmatist would just, would just ignore that? Would a pragmatist ignore that by saying like, like let's say we say, okay, so a blind person, let's say everybody in the world was blind and, we, and when someone made it a, an idea, well, perhaps we are that creature that is capable of sight even though we don't exercise this because we have no eyes. So let's say perhaps it, 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 it goes into like how you understand this concept of evolution. The, I think uh, Teilhard, the, one of the mystics of the Catholic tradition, his idea of, of evolution is that, so God is, is evolving in nature towards this kind of consciousness. Uh, and, and therefore, let's say a creature without eyes, let's say it's still of because it's teleologically uh, directed to become consciousness, right? It is of the nature it's going to, it has a potential for this sight, even though it has no eyes. So would a pragmatist be like, well, it does not matter, like, would just ignore that argument, N ignore the argument that you have uh, the capacity, the faculty argument, and they're talking more about the, the the behavior. So they don't care whether humans are that which has a faculty or the capacity for free will. It's, well, what are humans doing? Are they free or not free in their actions? Is that is that the level of analysis for a pragmatist? I think so. And it kind of gets, so another way maybe of looking at this, I mean, it's the the emergence question again. And it's kind of like, is color an essential part of the universe? Or did color only come into existence when color vision emerged? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I would, uh, yeah, and I don't know exactly how to, <laughs> how to answer that. I mean, obviously um, the universe was compatible with some biological feature that allowed people, to, uh, creatures to see color. Um, so there was light reflecting off stuff, and this could be translated into, into color for certain kinds of organisms. I mean, would we want to say that color, therefore, was kind of like a necessary potential or a fundamental potential in reality, irrespective of that? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that, for me, it really matters how we answer the question. I mean, for pragmatists, novelty happens. And you can't, you know, by definition, you can't predict novelty, but you can explain it 
looking backwards, I think this is kind of the truth of determinism, that once something new happens, you can then explain it, but you can never perfectly explain it, right? I think a total picture, a total causal, causal picture is beyond anything we can do. A total explanation of any phenomena you know, it would basically mean explaining the universe and then where did the universe come from and all of that. So I don't, I mean, but the, the kind of the kernel of truth in determinism is that once something new happens, we can basically get a good enough explanation that maybe we can predict it, maybe we can create it again. Um, but by definition, you can't really predict the novel. I mean, color. Yeah, I mean, this is happen, tricky stuff. Because <laughs> like, uh, like I mentioned about Wheeler and solidifying the past, once consciousness comes into being, it solidifies the, the past. And therefore we, we have an explanation for the past. But the explanation for the past didn't exist until we existed it. We willed it into existence. Right. <laughs> so even if we have, even if a new, uh, something new comes into the structure and we have an explanation for it, doesn't mean it would be deterministic. It just means that we overlaid a, a, a history onto that new thing. The new thing created its own history. Yeah, <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's basically the one of the major themes of one book that I really like, which I happen to have a paper copy of, so I'll show it. Called uh, wait, what is that one? Uh, Modern Science and Human Freedom by oh, okay. a guy named David Miller, who was a student of George Herbert Mead, and uh, this is one of the big themes of the book: is that um, basically the past doesn't new things create their own pasts right we don't have okay, interesting yeah <laughs> um you don't have a past for that thing until it comes and then you look you know why did this thing why did this event happen why did this new skill come about why did this new life form come about come about the past of it doesn't exist until you start asking until it exists and people start asking those questions and so therefore the past is always changing as well because um, you're always telling it from the perspective of the present which involves new things new perspectives mm. so the past in a way is never like a fixed thing at least yeah i mean you can maybe posit it yeah i don't even know what it means to like say that the past exists irrespective of our attempts to explain anything um i mean once things happen once and that the past goes happens other... it's gone right the present disappears when it gets on the, the other moment, problem of so. you can never get behind consciousness yeah, which is another yeah. problem that specifically for determinists have. And, and, uh, and it's, so this part about the motivations and uh, underlying assumptions for these particular points of view, as I see it, most of the people who are determinists are also against agency or not against it, but they are, they deny agency or the self, this thing called the self. And, you know, that's <laughs> because everything that we do is, is based on consciousness. I mean, the, the fact that we can have conversations, the fact that we can decide whether determinist, determinism is true or false, that's all based on our thinking. Our, our, and that's all based on conscious. Even our idea of like science and cause and effect, those are all conscious dependent concepts. Um, so it's really tricky. It's like a person, you know, the picture of the person sawing the branch off while standing on the branch. It's kind of people who deny the, the self while being a self. <laughs> mm -hmm. I find it to be a little bit problematic, but I, I, I do see, I specifically, I'm, I'm not so sure about the other one, specifically first though, uh, Harris and Sapolsky. Uh, Harris, of course, his 
no self or his denial of self comes more from Buddhism. Uh, Sapolsky's denial of self comes more from atheism, but both, you know, kind of reach a similar, I, I would say similar, but not totally similar because Sam Harris, I think in some place he says he's not, he's not actually uh, a materialist in that he's open to the possibility, like a Buddhist possibility of, of something like consciousness. Um, and I think Sapolsky would be very much a materialist, right? Um, so I guess that's where they differ. But they both agree, I think, in the denial of a something called the self, what we will call a self, um, which is also another word that's problematic, this thing called <laughs> the self. Uh, and specifically, I'm, I'm interested in that. Why? Because I also, I, I see that, you, I mean, you also have a kind of... Uh, different interpretation of the self the self the self for you is what like the whole body it's not like a ghost in the machine concept there's no real self there's more like just what the body does would that be how you describe the self yeah um i mean that would be one way i try i've tried anyway to or I, in general i try to avoid these words that have so many different meanings that you never know what you're talking about i have so far retained a very narrow use of the word self in kind of my own work, which um, which is more about interests, your interests and the skills related to those interests, which you can differentiate from role. Um, but normally, like if, when other people are talking about the self, I think when you're talking about the self, I tend to just think of the organism, the body that is the locus, the location of its experiences. Um, and that's maybe a little bit too simple because I think, I mean, it's always in contact with the rest of the world, but yeah, I don't see, um, yeah, I don't know what to make of kind of this more traditional or maybe more mysterious notion of the self. And, um, I don't know, maybe, so there's motivations for and against it. I mean, my motivation against the concept of self is that it's just, you know, too many different meanings and you never know, quite know what you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I guess I would want maybe from you would be like a more concrete, I don't know, I would want like a more specific or concrete picture of what the self means. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what Harris is rejecting if he rejects a self. I don't know that Sapolsky has said much about this in particular, um, I think rejecting free will is not exactly the same as rejecting the self, but I know you see them as closely tied together, closely connected. I don't know what well, so do you, do you want to say if, more about. If everything is determinate, right, for Sapolsky, right? If everything's determinate, then the only options would be either we are the driver in the driver, the self-driving car or the, the ghost behind the glass. Um, experiencing observing the, this what is going on but not interacting with it but obviously as he is a materialist atheist that they obviously go against his view i mean so i guess i'm going to be more inferring what he is what he believes in rather than you know everything he actually said but i guess i would imagine that he would be he, he would deny what libertarians will call a self or what uh i would call this self and i guess it 
it is kind of tricky talking about this this concept of self, I guess. But it's I for me, I I equate it with oh, I, I use the term consciousness and the self interchangeably. And uh, for me, this this consciousness it can be described by having this like triune attributes of awareness, experientiality, and agency. So uh, the Buddhists and, and Sam Harris, they talk a lot about this, this concept of awareness, you know, you're aware of something, but I, they leave out the concept of agency, which I think they're missing. Um, and like two sides of the same coin, on one side, you have awareness, experientiality, and agency. On the other side, you have uh, the observer. There is an observer to the observing. Like there is to, to any experience, there is the experiencer. To any uh, act, there is the actor. So these are these might be uh, terms we use, but talking about the same thing. Um, and I think that this thing, this thing that is aware, that experiences, and that ha that moves, that has agency or that acts, is what I call the self. And this is kind of a foundational self. And this would differ from something called the ego or formed character. Uh, a formed character or ego is something that we construct. We By we, I mean something this fundamental self constructs. Uh, but I also disagree, I guess, with people of the Sam Harris persuasion that this character is either an illusion or something to get past. So the, the Buddhist concept, right, to, to get past this, this ego's construct, let's say. But I'm more of like on the position of Carl Jung, the psychotherapist who's more, his position is, no, not, not to get, to do away with the ego, but to create an even stronger ego that can survive mystical experiences or, or whatever uh, experiences he was talking about, that the world will throw experiences at you. The, if you are totally aware of the world, right, it would overwhelm you with its majesty. And the goal is to create this self that can endure that. Hmm. So I guess that'd be the biggest, I think the biggest fundamental, uh, the underlying conflicts within this free. So people talk about free will and determinism, usually uh, at the level of free will and determinism. They don't realize that there is an underlying conflict going on. And I think this underlying conflict has to do with something called the consciousness and the self. For some people who don't agree with the, don't, who deny consciousness or a self, that obviously they would deny free will because there's nothing doing the free will if there is no thing there. Um, and I, I, I don't know, okay, not specifically about uh, materialism because that's a separate issue, but for Sam Harris and his position of the no self, I I see that more as some kind of misinterpretation. So uh, Buddhism grew out of Hinduism. Hinduism has this idea of um, what's well, the the idea of okay, I don't know what the the Hindu term is, but it's Atman. Atman is the self, mm -hmm. the the big mm -hmm. self. So each person has a Atman, the true self in each person. But this Atman is very similar to, or it's identical to Brahman, which is God self. So for the Hindus, there is true self. Buddhism comes around and denies self, but I think they're denying the different kind of self. So there are branches of Buddhism that don't you don't say no self; they say true self. But mainstream Buddhism says no self, and I believe that this is a a mis 
conception in Buddhism. I think Buddhists, <laughs> Buddhists are confused about this concept, but I, I think uh, there's, there's, I've read some, uh, some articles by some Buddhist monks who say, well, actually that that's like this conflict between these two terms, no self and true self. Actually, it means they're talking about the same thing. Like they're, they're using different words, but they actually mean the same thing. So I, maybe I agree with that. But I think that this, these term no self has gotten to gotten us uh, confused a bit. And I think in this case is what Sam Harris is doing is he is, he's using this term or he is, has this idea of the self being an illusion. But I think what those people who said the self is an illusion, I think that they're talking about something different than what the Hindus talk about when they say the word Atman or true self. I think mm -hmm. they're, they're talking about two different selves. Right. And I don't think whatever Sam Harris's experiences, he explained, he never denies the true self. He never denies that there is something experiencing something. And he's open to the idea that there, that, that could be fundamental reality. Mm. So he's not, he's not specifically a determinist. I mean, not specifically materialist. So what would, what would your position be in, in relation to that? I mean, do you think there is, see, it's tricky because even if you say like the word unchanging self, like, do you think that there is something, I mean, there is, must be, there must be something experiencing something, but you would equate that more with the body. Yeah. I think for me, that's the body as the whole, uh, maybe you want, so there's an interesting uh, distinction you brought up, which I think is important, which is, I mean, I don't know how to think about it in my own kind of terminology or philosophy, mm -hmm. but the distinction between character and self. And this was also made by one of the, um, uh, in the document I sent you by um, C.A. Campbell in his book, Selfhood and Godhood. And he defines free will, free will I think a little similar to you maybe, um, or maybe quite similarly, but maybe with some difference hmm. in that free will is, free will, uh, free actions are only those which which are the which depends solely upon the self, which he distinguishes from character and from also, of course, hereditary influences, yeah. environmental influence. So it's free actions are not those which are influenced by character, which is interesting. So not influenced by character and of course not influenced by hereditary environment, blah, blah, blah. But then the difficult thing has always been, I think, what exactly then is the self? If it's not your character, <laughs> if it's not your uh, biological inheritance. I mean, we're talking about something like a soul, but then how okay, do we... Well, I guess th this is just uh, some, some metaphor. I don't know if it's, uh, it's very helpful in explaining, but the, like playing piano. So let, let's say I want to play a piano. Uh, I want to play a song. I will myself to play certain chords. I'm, I'm doing, but once I will myself to do that, it gets into a pattern. And then later on, I can play without even thinking. So this is like a distinction between a self and a, for, a, a what's it called? A, a formed character. So the self is the one who started off by, you know, willing this, willing the, the body to play these chords, but in doing that has constructed a kind of algorithm. And therefore the next time I play, I don't need to will anything. I just turn on the algorithm and the algorithm plays for me. So this algorithm is something like an ego or a formed character. 
It's something that the self creates uh, to to uh, in, get along in the world much more efficiently, perhaps. I don't know what the, what the purpose of that would be. But again, I guess if we're talking about this thing called the, the self is still tricky. I mean, I, I keep going back to these ideas of having these, these three attributes and agency being one of these attributes. And my position of that is that because reality itself, when we talk about this, this concept called reality, reality must be, at least in part, something like agency. It must be something like, uh, I know this is uh, similar to, uh, I, I forget now which philosopher talks more about uh, um, events or occurrences, a whitehead, it's whitehead, right? Mm -hmm. And for him, reality, fundamental reality is, you know, occurrences, events, movement, action. Um, I'm not sure if I totally agree with his views, uh, but it, it seems to me that whatever this agency is must be part of fundamental reality. Like in order to, in order to choose, in order to do something, if that, if that doing and choosing is affecting reality, affecting, affecting the paths of reality, then it must be intimately intertwined. But I do want to uh, just jump backwards a little bit when you were talking about this, the self and the body. Um, Daniel Siegel, I think he wrote a book, something about the mind. Uh, and he, I don't know if he has uh, introduced this concept, but I'm pretty sure it has been around for a while, but it's the idea of a transpersonal mind. That the mind or the you is not just you and your body. It also is is you, like you and your son and you and your wife. Like it's it's, there's a part of you that's outside your body. And it, it's kind of also yeah. kind of a weird mystical way of putting it, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of, there's some kind of connection between you and your family, for instance. Uh, so whatever you, whatever you, what we're talking about is not just inside you. It's, it's transpersonal. It's beyond you. It's beyond the brain because it's in your body, like your gut, but it's also beyond the body and the brain and that it reaches out to your social connections. What do you think yeah. about that concept? Yeah, I basically agree with it. I would maybe say it in a different way, but yeah, so I talk about the body but of as kind of the site of experience, but that's a bit of a simplification because mm -hmm. of course you're uh you're within a society and a culture that also kind of uh conditioned how how you experience and your actions um influence the world around you, your culture, your society. So there's much more of a, I mean, the, the Deweyans will talk about transactions. So you're constantly in a transact, you know, the organism is in a constant transaction with its environment. So you can analytically distinguish, and it can be very useful, of course, to distinguish organisms, bodies, and their environments. But it's not really an absolute distinction because they're so, I mean, you can't have a body outside of an environment or an organism outside of hmm. an environment and it still be an organism it would just be lifeless gunk <laughs> or whatever so yeah i mean i uh one of the ways that dewey's ideas has have been developed is in the concept of the extended mind which hmm. kind of emphasizes this act this aspect which is that um because we live we're social creatures 
And we live within kind of this symbolic culture, which is necessary to our survival, necessary to who we are, necessary to how we experience. You know, it's not just really that we're just an isolated self or an isolated body, but we're in this whole yeah. interconnected web of things, which... I um, find that that kind of... <clears throat> it, it's hard to talk about that without yeah. postulating some... So for me, like in my presentation I had before about uh, meaning, like the uh, meaning as being a fundamental aspect of reality, it's hard to talk about something like uh, transpersonal minds if we don't postulate some other something else besides matter and energy or matter, let's say. If if whatever this mind stuff is is transacting with others, what pathway, what in what way is your mind stuff traveling to another person and traveling back? Like, what is that? That's not particles. Like, that's something else. So I think I think it gets into like for me, I I'm imagining that there must be a kind of another layer of reality that we call meaning. For maybe for a pragmatist, they would say, okay, that's like an emergent level, emergent property, symbolic level of reality. It doesn't actually exist. It's just in our in our mind, but. For, yeah, for me, the mind one. itself is is something of another layer of reality. Okay, but yeah, I, I, I had a interesting quote. I mean, this is going off on a little another back, back to the idea of underlying motivations and assumptions for people on either who are uh, you know for a materialist position or free will position or somewhere in between. Uh, this quote from James Ogilvy. Uh, well, I was reading one of his books that we were, we were editing, and um, he has this quote because he's talking about uh, Satra and existentialism, and he says, freedom becomes an almost impossible burden. Freedom is anguished, says Satra, so difficult to bear that we are inclined to fall into what he calls bad faith. We are inclined to view ourselves as things, not as free, because it is easier that way. We no longer bear the burden of responsibility for our acts or for determining the values by which we judge our acts. Uh, so this is interesting because obviously the essentialists are very much, hey, as much as I might have some difficulty with them or some issues with them, they are very much, they, their whole philosophy is predicated on freedom. Like that's basically the, their philosophy in a nutshell. And then we have, you know, these people coming around like Sapolsky and Sam Harris who are going the complete opposite, totally denying the concept of, of free will or freedom or, you know, this sense of agency. Uh, and I'm not accused, obviously I'm not accusing them of being afraid of freedom or it being, it's easier to view ourselves as things rather than dealing with the consequences of freedom. Hmm. But I do also think that the purpose of consciousness is to be free or to be more and more free, to become more aware of this, this capacity, this co-creative capacity of freedom, um, and therefore, I see some kind of, you know, underlying conflict between the free will and determinist people related to this idea of like, on one hand, you want to be denying freedom. And what would be the purpose of denying freedom? What would be your motivation? Of course, people, the argument against me or my position might be, okay, why do I want this freedom? Why do I want so much to be a self? <laughs> <laughs> I should yeah, do some so, meditation and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think we should maybe turn to motivations and 
free will. And I think it's maybe important to distinction. I do want to, well, so let's turn to that. But uh, first, just very briefly on the, the mind stuff okay. uh, topic, which you mentioned, and we should maybe do a, uh, you know, a future, um, a future yeah, episode more on, on consciousness. But yeah, um, so just briefly about that, and maybe we should get into it another time. But I do think that there is maybe more simple and mundane explanations for how we transmit ideas, for example, how ideas develop, how we, you know, transmit our thoughts and so forth, which is, you know, they're transmitted through sound and writing and stuff like that, which are very physical, right? And this is something that we learn how to do in a particular culture, a particular society. Um, I used to be confused about, I mean, I used to have a hard time with the concept of concept. Like, you know, it seems very abstract. Where do they exist? Um, one answer is they exist in the body. They exist in the wiring in your body. But another, the other answer is how they get transmitted. We put them, you know, we speak them, we transmit them. They actually exist as, you know, sound waves or as, you know, marks on paper that we're able to um, interpret because we belong to the same culture and the same species and so forth. So I think there's kind of naturalistic explanations for these things, how we're able to influence others with our thoughts and so forth yeah. without positing kind of another layer or a kind of mind stuff. Um, but there's debate about that. We can maybe discuss that another time. But yeah, maybe to finish up, because we've been talking for uh, a pretty long time now, maybe turn to those, like, why do people take these different positions? Um, maybe some ethical, moral stuff. Um, I think an, an interesting kind of distinction or conflation you made just before was with freedom and free will. And I think these might need to be separated. And I think it is common for people to think of these as the same thing. But as I've mentioned earlier, pragmatists mostly rejected the concept of free will, free will as this personal, like individual kind of thing. But we still want to talk about um, freedom, like social freedom, political freedom. And I think Sapolsky would probably have that same view. He rejects free will as this thing that you have. And I don't know exactly if I agree with him or not, but it depends, of course, how you define these things. But I think he would still maintain that freedom in an economic and a political sense are important things, the freedom of people to not Yeah, well, this is, oppressed. this is a, a big area that they have, at least Sapolsky and um, Harris. It, it's about, again, another, another of their motivations, which is related to reward and punishment or as they put it, to make making the world a better place, even though that does sound a little bit incoherent. How do you make the world a better place if you're not doing anything, if you don't have yeah. a will to do it? Mm -hmm. um, but and see, their, their idea is predicated on this notion that, well, uh, supposedly for sure, you know, like once we understand all the motivations for why people do things, we will no longer have any uh, judgment of anybody who does anything bad. Or we have no praise for anybody who does something good either. Because we realize that whatever they did or didn't do is just a result of their prior biology. Um, and if we adopt that view, our world will be, it will be a better world because we can let go of judgments and let go of, you know, praising people. Uh, now, I also have the same motivation. I also believe 
that we should get past this idea of judgment, this idea of, uh, it's a very biblical concept of judge not that you be not judged. So I also have the same motivation, but I see the determinists, they are ramping up a terrible product under this, this, with this ramping of, of like, you know, the world would be better if we just didn't have any freedom, if we didn't have any free will, let's say that if there is no free will, then no one will get judged and no one would get praised, right? It would be much happier, more egalitarian. Um, but I think you can reach that goal of not judging without giving up free will and agency. Mm-hmm. And okay, so I guess we'll <laughs> just a few more things before we end about, okay, if I, I saw one of those Pulaski's uh, podcasts and he was talking about, so they would still agree. So he would still agree. Like if somebody did something bad, you still put them in prison, but you would put them in prison because, you know, it's more of a mechanistic thing. Uh, this uh, person is likely to do this. And therefore you must put them in this box so they can't do those things. Um, but we get rid of all of the moralizing of it. Like, oh, you're a bad person because you did this. Um, what would you think the the implication of free will determinism would be on something like the justice system or our sense of uh, justice? And second to that is the concept of morality. Can yeah. you have good and bad concepts if there is no free will? But anyways, yeah, first let's go with the the justice justice system. How would that work? Yeah, this is the part of Sapolsky that I actually like, although, as I said, I kind of reject the basic free will versus determinism framing. Yeah. Um, so I would kind of reject, I would kind of reject how he talks about determinism and free will, although I appreciate, I mean, I think his work is really, really useful in, I mean, I think that's part of freedom is understanding all the influences on you. And if yeah. you understand when you're hungry, you're going to make bad decisions. Well, you can take that into account. And in a sense, and you become, become more, more free, more free. Yeah. Um, so, but I think like my appreciation in a way of his um, kind of the moral implications are maybe separate from whether I think he's right or wrong about free will. Um, and I think other people that I admire, Dewey, other people in the early 20th century, Theodore de Laguna, they said, all you really need is an instrumental view of reward and punishment. You don't need to, it doesn't matter whether we have free will or not in that sense. Like all that matters is what can you do to, uh, what effects do praise and blame have on future behavior? That's all we really need to know. Like will punishing this person in this way make them less likely to do this bad thing again? Will praising someone in this way make them more likely to do this good thing again? That's all really that matters. And it doesn't matter whether we posit free will or no free will or self or no self, or it's just, I think reward and punishment can be thought of in a purely pragmatic, purely instrumental way. And it, these kind of metaphysical debates don't really need to <laughs> matter for that part, but I don't know. Do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we are instinctively like we're, we are creatures of meaning. And so we want to have meaning. We, we could, I mean, there is this idea of ritual, like just going through the motions, like let's say, okay, we realize that if we all stand up and say, A, uh, so-and-so is a bad person, 
then that will have an effect of making the person not do this particular action. Even though the person standing up and saying you're a bad person has no, there's no meaning behind it. It's just like an algorithm saying the words. Uh, so it's, it's possible. And I think this is a lot uh, like the old days of ritual. A lot of ritual stuff is like this. I, I think a lot of ritual is there's not necessarily uh, a dogmatic belief behind the ritual. The ritual is just more like a procedure that has a certain kind of effect. I mean, for me personally, I would like I would like a world where there is no just uh, there is no judgment, there is no punishment, there is no these concepts. We can move past these concepts. Um, I, I'm I'm very much anti death penalty. I'm very much anti prison. I think prisons are barbaric institutions. Uh, but of course, you, you run into the problem of like, okay, what if someone's running around shooting people? What are you going to do about this? And I, I think this is, uh, I mean, I think there is what you do as in a practical sense. You've got to be pragmatic in some way. Um, but there's also the ideal, the goal that you are aiming for. And a goal I think you're aiming for is to have a world without uh without this moralizing of behavior, because the more we realize how much is influenced, the more free we can be, and the more free from judgment we can be, the more free we can be to not judge others. Uh, but this is why specifically I disagree with Harris and Sapolsky about this concept of how we get to that better world. They get to the better world by denying free will and agency. Uh, and I would, reject that completely because my position is that we choose, and this also goes again, at least for Harris, the idea of his background in Buddhism and tradition was like, there is no self and we have to move past this to get past suffering. So the goal is to avoid the suffering. But I think the Western tradition is very much the opposite. The goal is not to avoid the suffering. The goal is to endure the suffering rather than betray our desires. So rather than betray our desire to be an agent, to be free, we need to embrace the suffering that comes with being an agent and being free in order to transcend it. And uh, there's this movie called Equilibrium uh, where it's like in the future, they everybody takes a pill so they don't have any emotions. And then they ended war, they ended jealousy, they ended everything, right? But they also ended art. They ended anything beautiful about being a human. That's the, the whole movie. And I think Sam Harris and Sapolsky's were uh, the... The, where they will take us if they <laughs> had their way, where they would take us is a world like equilibrium where people don't have any of those things. In fact, they also will kill everything beautiful about being human. And I think my goal is that we could have both, that we could be, we could have the beauty of being human. Uh, we could endure the suffering until we get past it into a world where we don't have uh, this, this kind of judgment and punishment and this desire for revenge but I, I do have one final point uh, about, <laughs> I know it's getting late, but uh, about the implications of this, this free will determinism debate. Besides the moral one, there is also the technological one. What would happen if technocrats, let's say Sam, let's say Sam Harris and Sapolsky, were in charge of building AI systems or in charge of uh, you know, the, in Google or whatever, if they did not have a view that humans have agency, they might not view technology that could reduce our agency as a threat. And I think this is a problem because it's possible like this idea of social media, uh, TikTok or whatever, 
disinhibiting, uh, not disinhibiting, inhibiting our capacity, our faculty of, of free will and agency. So we have on one side, we have media doing that. The other side there, it is possible to think uh, like Elon Musk and his Neuralink, it's possible to think of actually developing technologies that will have a biological impact on our capacity, our faculty of agency and free will. But if, you, if someone doesn't believe that we have free will to begin with, then they wouldn't view things like Neuralink or the, the, the possibility of taking that into a different direction. They, they wouldn't necessarily view that as a threat because if we don't have free will, then things that, that, uh, that might biologically change us by removing some kind of faculty of free will, it wouldn't be viewed that as a threat. Now, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, and I do kind of find Sam Harris a bit inconsistent in his determinism on the one hand and then finding consciousness really mysterious on the other and how can you be sure about one thing and not sure about the other and then he's also very worried about AI but then if things are so deterministic why do we need to worry about <laughs> AI so I'm not I mean I like Sam Harris I like listening to Sam Harris but I you know sometimes have trouble reconciling his different positions. And I don't know if it's my problem or his problem, but um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know how to explain. Uh, just, I guess what why, he would say about his, like, why he's, let's say, concerned about AI. Mm -hmm. So even though we have no choice, no free will, and everything is just determinate, um, part of what is determined is his being afraid of AI. That's determined. But his mm -hmm. fear of AI has its own effects. He did not cause his fear of AI, but that fear of AI can have residual effects. It could cause other people to be afraid and therefore in the future not have AI. Uh, but but yeah, I do also have the same problem. How, why, would, why would it matter whether you're afraid of something or you want something or not want something? Or how can you even say a better world? How can you even say those concepts if you are just determined? It, makes no, it doesn't have any meaning if it's just determined. Yeah. So I feel like maybe in these views, as well as the um, like criminal justice issue, like maybe the, like I would just separate out those issues of determinism and free will, which for me are really highly metaphysical um, and very difficult to nail down. And for me, at least for me personally, I don't think it matters that much when you're discussing these other issues. So I think you can tackle criminal justice reform without um, understanding whether or not we have free will or whether free will or not actually exists. I think Sapolsky has a little bit of this sense, like he says in his book that he's not, he doesn't expect you to totally agree with his view on free will. Maybe he'll nudge you like a little bit in this direction, but he is hoping, hoping to persuade you about um, you know, reward and punishment that we don't, shouldn't just, you know, we shouldn't blame people for things that are out of their control, which, you know, I agree with. I think, you know, blame, like I said, blame can be just purely instrumental. Um, and I think AI, I don't, um, I think AI will, and these neural link kinds of things, these integrating technologies with our bodies will change. I would say they will change how we make choices. They'll change maybe how we view the world and the kinds of choices we make and the kind of interpretations we make. But do you, are you worried that if somebody has a leverage of those technologies, 
are you worried if they have a particular view that it might influence it might increase the danger from those technologies so i mean from my point of view if i if i believe in free will and the person with the levers of technology doesn't believe in free will i might be concerned um maybe you wouldn't be as concerned because you're not really that much into free will to begin with uh but there might be other things that you hold dear that might that you might see as being or as say for instance if i was in the had the levers of control the technology <laughs> to make you more free <laughs> Well, again, I wouldn't conflate free will and freedom. So if someone had control of those levers of technological power who uh, was kind of against freedom or against my freedom or against the freedom of this or that group to oh, yeah. so um, believe what they want to believe. Free will. Or, yeah. oh, I mean specifically free will. So if, if they have a technology capable of diminishing your capacity, not your capacity, but your faculty of free will, not to restrict your freedom as more of a, of a, you know, everyday sense of the word, but if there is something that could change the human being or the biology or the structure of the mind to, to inhibit or, uh, you know, close off the faculty of free will, that be a concern. Or if someone doesn't have a belief in free will, they might not think that some technologies that could inhibit free will as being a threat, right? That's my, that would be my position yeah. about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just, again, for me, I think it's definitely a concern for what these technologies technologies are doing. I think even with something like social media, it does matter the kinds of views they highlight and people are making decisions, at least in terms of building the algorithms that are making the decisions about what you see and what you don't see. And that has an effect on the kinds of choices you make, right? Because if you know something exists, you know, if you know this range of choices exists, and but you don't know about this other range of choices, that is mm, part of yeah. your freedom. And again, I don't see me, I don't uh, need to tie that in with free will in my own views. Um, well, see, that's that's free. That's freedom. So the idea of like yeah. fake news and sort of stuff. That's that's at the level of freedom. But there's different. Right. The other level of of free will would be: is this technology, let's say TikTok, rewiring our brain, our mind structure, or our, our uh, is it is it doing something to our underlying structures, whether it's the brain or the mind? Is it doing something that is disallowing or it's it's restricting our capacity or our faculty of free will not not in the sense of okay fake news or like some products being sold to us that's one level of restricting freedom or something but the other level is is it doing is it possible to do something to our entire structure that our faculty will be inhibited our, our well capacity. for me again i would yeah again and for me i it's just, it's changing us definitely. And it's more at the level of, you know, it changes how you see the world. Different media change how you see the world. Watching films changes how you see the world. Playing video games changes how you see and experience the world. Reading novels changes how you see and experience the world. So all these things are always changing you. And you can see that, could see that maybe as enhancing or diminishing, if the case may be, your free will. But I, I don't, find it that useful to think in those terms. I would just say it's changing you. It's changing how you see things, hmm. maybe changing what you do, your likely responses that you're going to make. I guess uh, another way to put this maybe would be like giving someone a lobotomy. Let's hmm. imagine, let's imagine that whatever we call free will is a faculty 
Uh, I think it's a faculty of something called the soul or the self. I think the self is transcendent to the physical world, but let's just talk in biological terms and say that this faculty is, is structured in your brain somewhere. Whereas if it, to, to the extent where if we give you a lobotomy, we have eradicated your, not eradicated, but we have greatly limited your faculty of free will. Do you think technology has a capacity for lobotomy? And do you think if people in with the levers of technology who don't believe in free will, would they not view technology that would lobotomize us as a threat? I don't mean actually lobotomize us, but I mean, some technology that could impact our structure in such a way as to cut out or diminish this faculty. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I do think, you know, there is that possibility of technology or different media in effect lobotomizing you. I think you know, sometimes I wonder that about my students, but I won't, <laughs> <laughs> I won't elaborate on that point. Um, whether people who don't believe in free will should be worried about that. Um, I guess I kind of fall into that, but not in the way that most people will think. Um, so what does what what someone like Sapolsky worry? I think Sapolsky is probably, I don't know if I've heard him talk about this, but I'm sure he has worries about the effects of technology on people. Um, how would he view this from a deterministic? Well, I mean, that's part of the environmental influence, right? So he does think, of course, that your environment is one of the determinants of how you act. So if there's bad determinants from your environment, you're mm -hmm. you're going to get bad actions as a result. So I think probably there's a way to answer that without um, positing free a capacity of free will that it's just you know bad bad environment, right? He talks about bad um, natal, prenatal environments, bad childhood environments and so on. And the, the media environment or technological environment is another environment which could be good or bad. So I think as one determinant, I think that's the way he would maybe answer that question, although I <laughs> hesitate to answer for someone smarter about me than many things that uh, in many ways than uh, Robert Sapolsky. But we should maybe try oh, okay. to wrap up here. Any uh, last, right. uh, last points you want to? Uh, that's pretty emphasize? much it. I mean, Mike, I guess the last point would be that, as I see it, all of philosophy and science is predicated on a notion of agency. I think science and philosophy would be meaningless in a deterministic universe, at least the science and philosophy as we understand them nowadays. Uh, I, I, I obviously, those <laughs> Sam Harris and Sapolsky would disagree, but there's there would be no conception of science as we understand it, as we are doing something to make the world better. As, as a quote you mentioned before, trying to make the world better, we are, we are affecting change in the world by doing science, right? Or philosophy. That whole notion would disappear if, if we lived in a deterministic universe where we are not doing anything. We are just uh, algorithms performing actions that are predetermined. So I think the whole, the, the motivation of science and the motivation of philosophy is predicated on the notion that we are agents with free will. And if we remove that foundation of science and philosophy, I don't know what it would do to science and philosophy. 
for Sam Harris and those guys, and I think, oh, would not do anything to, to, to science because science will just continue. Just like, but I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if the structure can continue without its foundation. Um, anyways, well, that's <laughs> the last point I had there. All right. And I think that's a very uh, respectable position. I just, um, yeah, I think we can understand a lot of those things without the specific concept of free will. I mean, agency for me is a, maybe a good enough term that comes in when you get living things and in humans comes in when you get um, symbols and can think about the future instead of just being limited to your immediate situation. So um, hmm. yeah, but I think- uh, Yeah, and I, I like that explanation, that's good. Okay. All right, well, that's maybe a good note to end on. So I'll stop the, <laughs> stop the recording at least. Uh,